a rang dang diggity dang de dang. This sentiment shift is making me insane. The recovery is starting to feel perilous. We made progress, but did we get careless? The battle over vaccinations across nations, millions getting sick, another damnation. China and the U.S. getting in each other's faces, climate catastrophes in so many places. We're fighting over mass after all we've been through. You do right by me, I'll do right by you. We got to be smarter, so many risks to address. We got to get right on the Investopedia Express. Well, welcome back and welcome aboard. Sentiment is getting more and more sensitive and it's getting a little sour across the capital markets. We'll break down the technicals in just a little bit and then we'll go macro for a look at some of the biggest risks facing the global economy with Ian Bremmer of the Eurasia Group a little further on down the line. Those risks, not surprisingly, start with the continued spread of the Delta variant. U.S. weekly infections topped 1 million last Friday for the first time since the surge last winter. Two states, Florida and Texas, accounted for about a quarter of all the cases here in the United States. We haven't seen a million cases since the peak last November to January. That's leading to event cancellations, more mass mandates, more economic disruptions, more uncertainty, and more anxiety. We feel it in consumer sentiment, and we're feeling it now in investor sentiment. The Investopedia Anxiety Index is percolating, and so is the American Association of Individual Investor Sentiment Survey. It just went bearish for the first time since October of 2020. Corrections and bear markets are popping up across capital markets. Oil prices are down 16% from recent highs as economic fears continue to weigh on demand projections for the rest of the year. But oil's not the only commodity in a correction. Copper prices are down 19% from recent highs. Palladium is down 23%. And lumber prices have crashed more than 70% from their recent highs. If you're looking for a bear market in equities, it's happening in Hong Kong. The Hang Seng Index has fallen 20% from its most recent peak as investors are struggling to value companies amid a broad crackdown by Chinese authorities across a wide swath of industries. Those losses are extending to Chinese ADRs trading here in the U.S. and Chinese companies listed on the NASDAQ. Just last week, shares of China Finance Online fell 54%, OnTrack fell 52%, Endo International, 46%. Zangman Education, 42%. And the OLB Group, 41%. Right here in the U.S., the S&P 500 is up 18% this year and sits about 1% below all-time highs after a pretty choppy couple of weeks. Intermarket analysis tells us there's some more unsettling signs worth paying attention to. The U.S. yield curve is at a one-year low, a signal that investors think growth will continue to slow and it's getting disrupted by this latest wave. Emerging markets are negative year-to-date now, and the Dow transports are down 6% in the past three months. Just 2.5% of that happened last week. Corporate profits, to be sure, have been sensational. They hit a record high for the second straight quarter. Gap earnings increased 174% year-over-year, while operating earnings increased 94% in case you're keeping score. Don't worry, we will. A lot of that profit growth, however, came from the biggest companies in the indexes. You know who they are, the FANG stocks, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, and Google. Excuse me while I get technical for a minute. As our pal J.C. Peretz at All-Star Charts points out, if you strip out the market weighting of those five giant stocks that account for about $9 trillion in market cap, and you look at the equal-weighted S&P 500, it peaked back in May and has basically gone nowhere for the past three months. In the traditional cap-weighted S&P 500, 
Those five stocks represent over 20% of the entire index. We've seen that concentration before, and it's back. The good news for index investors and owners of ETFs that track the broader market, they own these stocks most likely. They're the most popular, most widely held stocks of all, and they've been bringing in the returns over the past six months. Facebook is up 33%, Alphabet's Google up 30%, Microsoft 20%, Apple 16%, Amazon is the only laggard there, down 1% in the time period. We are back in the land of giants again, and that means it can be dangerous to be small. To wit, the small cap Russell 2000 closed below its 200-day moving average for the first time in 11 months last week. Market breath is also deteriorating. I'm not talking about halitosis on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. I'm talking about the amount of stocks going up versus the amount of stocks going down. Through midweek last week, the S&P 1500 was up nearly 6% over the past three months, while the average stock in the index was actually down 65 basis points. Is it time to panic? Never. It's time to pay attention to these indicators, though, and decide for yourself if you're overexposed to certain stocks or sectors that have lost that love and feeling. Mav and the Goose, that just never gets old. Let's get set up for the week ahead. We've got the tail end of second quarter earnings season rolling on in with companies including Best Buy and Toll Brothers reporting on Tuesday. Those are two pretty good indicators of consumer spending and home building enthusiasm. Themes for this week. Salesforce and Snowflake report on Wednesday and on Thursday, we'll hear from both Dollar General and Dollar Tree. When U.S. consumers get tight on spending, those stocks have tended to do very well. The U.S. housing market will be back in focus with a report on existing home sales for July on Monday and new home sales numbers released on Tuesday. We know the red-hot housing market is cooling, and it should continue to cool as we head into the fall. Housing stocks are also feeling the chill as investors anticipate that slower growth ahead. Thursday's report on initial weekly unemployment claims and continuing claims will also reflect the sensitivity of the U.S. labor market. Weekly claims last week fell to 348,000 and continuing claims fell to 2.8 million, both pandemic-era lows. Will those declines continue given the rise of COVID-19 cases lately? We'll see. We've seen some strong hiring in the services sector of the economy, but that's also the most sensitive sector to rising COVID cases. On Friday, U.S. personal spending and inflation figures will be released for July, and we know that spending slowed dramatically last month, especially for automobiles and discretionary items. Friday's report will provide more detail on where spending slowed the most and how big of a factor inflation actually played in the slowdown. Remember that Federal Reserve retreat in Jackson Hole, Wyoming that was scheduled for this weekend? Well, that got canceled due to COVID. So, no showdown in the mountains this summer, but central bankers will meet virtually instead. Expect a lot of chatter on how much and when the Fed will start to taper those $120 billion worth of monthly government bond purchases. 16 months into this global pandemic, and instead of the end being in sight, it feels a lot more confusing now than it did even six months ago. One thing we know for sure, things will never be the same, from our daily routines to the shape of the global economy. No one follows that shape-shifting more than Ian Bremmer. He's a best-selling author, educator, and founder of the Eurasia Group, a research data and analytics company that specializes in identifying risk and creating strategies to anticipate and react to megatrends in politics 
and the economy. He's also our special guest this week on The Express, and what a time to have him on. Welcome to the show, Ian. Thank you. Good to be with you. In your top global risk report that you guys put out at the beginning of the year, you listed 10 of the biggest risks facing the global economy. Let's just take a few of them and see where we are nine months into the year. Long COVID, check. Climate net zero meets G zero, check. U.S.-China tensions, check. Global data reckoning, check, check, right? Iran-U.S. confrontation, check. And a tech lash in the U.S., check, check. Obviously, the withdrawal from Afghanistan and what's happened since then, we're not on this list and probably not on the radar at that point. How big of a deal is this to the global world order and to the uh, Biden presidency? I certainly believed that Biden was going to affect a withdrawal. And I personally believe that that was the right decision. I think that if Obama or Trump had been willing to allow the end of the war on their watch, and it's never you know, a comfortable or popular thing to do is have a loss of a war happen under you. So kick the can instead, at least a bit, we would all be better off. But I will tell you that the staggering incompetence of the execution of that withdrawal has surprised me. And if I'm being honest with you, Caleb, I know this cabinet personally and really well. I've known them for a long time. These are very smart, experienced, and capable men and women. And I was really surprised with the planning failure, the intelligence failure, the lack of coordination with allies. This was a really own goal that did not need to happen. Biden's credibility on Afghanistan, he was the guy that was saying, don't do the surge back under Obama. That failed. This should have been a relatively easy thing for Biden to pull off with some backlash, sure. But again, coordinated. It's on his timeline. He's the one that's doing it. And I I think that the knock-on effects are not going to be grievous for him unless Americans on the ground get killed. And there are lots of reasons why the Taliban will, will not be attacking them. They want the Americans out as much as the Americans do. But the knock-on effects for the transatlantic relationship longer term are, are significant. I mean, Armin Laschet, the likely next chancellor of Germany, has said in the last 24 hours, this is the single biggest debacle that NATO has had since its founding. The idea that the Germans would be saying that about Biden in his first year after four years of Trump, inconceivable to anyone back in January. Let's go back to the original list. Long COVID, while epidemiologists and others have been telling us that there would be variants of the coronavirus, did you expect this wave to be as fierce? And should we expect more right behind it? We're not epidemiologists. What we expected was a complete lack of coordination both domestically inside the United States, red state versus blue state, all of the fake news, all of the illegitimacy that is growing of the mainstream media and even of doctors and scientists, as well as the growing confrontation between rich states and poor states. I mean, the United States, remember, under Trump, the United States withdrew from the World Health Organization in the middle of a pandemic. It's an obscenity. So Biden comes back and we said, no, we want to work with the WHO. And yet right now we have the WHO publicly telling the Americans, do not, do not give booster shots to your entire population before most of the world has gotten their first jab. We are, again, under Biden, we are actually at odds 
with what the WHO is directly recommending. And how could that be? And it's because increasingly America firstism is not a partisan talking point. It is an underlying reality of where U.S. foreign policy is headed. The Americans do not want to be the global policeman anymore. They do not want to be the global architect of trade. And they do not want to be the cheerleader of global values. To the extent that Biden has a foreign policy doctrine, I would argue that it is this notion of a foreign policy for the middle class, for the American middle class, something that Jake Sullivan and Brian Deese have articulated fairly well. And this rollout of vaccines is that. This withdrawal from Afghanistan is that. I mean, you can draw a line between those two things and many other things, $3.5 trillion in infrastructure investment, which I still think is likely to occur and will be a big success, probably Biden's biggest success of his administration, assuming he pulls it off. That's an American foreign policy for the middle class as well. But, but my God, Caleb, if you're European or Brazil or Mexico or really almost anyone around the world looking at the United States, it feels different. That Biden speech the other day to the nation about Afghanistan feels very different if you're not American. That, I think, is a, is a significant knock-on impact of what has been happening in the United States now for some 40, 50 years. This is a trend and it maybe have been accelerated in the past year or so or in the past five years or so. Let's talk about China, U.S.-China tensions. That was high on our list. It's pretty tense. But I've heard you say this, that this is by no means a Cold War in the traditional sense. It's a Cold War on the technology front. How big of a risk has this become and how big do you think it'll be? It's not a Cold War. The White House has said the end of engagement with China is now upon us. But I saw just yesterday that BlackRock, the American investment firm, said that they were recommending to increase exposure to China to their investors by a factor of three. So they're not ending investment and engagement. They're leaning into it. Goldman Sachs isn't ending their engagement. The NBA and Hollywood aren't ending their engagement. We still want to buy goods from China. We still want Chinese students to come to American universities and pay full freight. And by the way, the Chinese still want those things too. So there's a lot of hot rhetoric. And one of the few things that you can get agreement on from the Democrats and Republicans today is the idea that China is our leading strategic competitor. We need to do something about it. And there is no trust between the two countries. But the way I would put it, Caleb, this relationship is kind of like if you are married and you don't like your spouse anymore, you certainly don't love your spouse, but you've got kids and you love your kids and, and they're both in the house with you and you're, not, and you're not going anywhere. And that's a deeply uncomfortable place to be. It doesn't feel good, but it also means that there is a certain amount of predictability. And what is what those kids are going to experience going forward. Now, there are some areas and technology is a core one where the U.S. and China truly are decoupling. The Chinese are doing their best to limit supply chain exposure externally to have control over that. And the Americans are telling their allies, don't you use Huawei. We don't trust the Chinese on 5G and on smart grid and critical infrastructure and all of that. But even there, you know, the Taiwanese today 
And we have this policy of strategic ambiguity with Taiwan, where both the United States and China effectively accept a status quo that doesn't make anyone really happy. Well, the Taiwanese have a company, TSMC, that exports 80% of the world's semiconductors. And we want them to be a partner of the U.S. They're never going to stop being a partner of mainland China because the persistence of strategic ambiguity is critical to the interdependence of both countries. So what's going to happen is they're going to build fabs in the United States and they're going to build fabs in mainland China. And so there will be a level of decoupling because we won't be fully integrated on this stuff the way that we increasingly were through globalization. But the level of interdependence will persist and be very deep. And for those people out there, like my friend Neil Ferguson, who are presently making the argument that we are in a cold war with the Chinese right now, that's just wrong. It's objectively wrong. And if we were to enter into a cold war with the Chinese, that would actually be a failure of most of some very critical strategic objectives for both countries. And we're both aware of that. Right. Well, it's hard when we're each other's biggest customers. We're relying on each other for lots of exports, lots of revenue, and there is some co-usage of some of the technology out there. It's hard to untangle that, and it's hard to see how that will end. And, and the semiconductor industry is right in the middle of it because of the shortages and because of our reliance on that technology for basically everything. They're the, the transports of the 21st century. Let's talk about climate change. We can't escape the realities of the forest fires out west, the droughts in Brazil, the flooding in Europe. Has climate Climate change been overshadowed by COVID and the host of other risks that are out there. And do you think that may be the biggest risk of all? Because it's something we cannot control. These are black swan type events. It hasn't. I mean, certainly it's been overshadowed in the headlines for the last year and a half. Caleb, I'll accept that. But it hasn't been overshadowed in its impacts on the world. And the policy focus is growing. And the money, the movement of money is growing. If you are a fossil fuel company in the private sector, you understand that if you're not diversifying, your stocks aren't worth that worth anything today. Uh, ExxonMobil's felt well aware of that right now. And the popular acceptance, and we just had the report from the United Nations on the state of the world and climate just a week ago. And you've got 200 countries participating, and they all basically accept the science that man-made climate change to the tune of 1.1 degrees centigrade globally already baked in, and a minimum of 1.5 we're hitting, we're shooting through in the next 10 years. They all accept that. That that by itself is a very meaningful change than where we were on this planet five years ago or 10 years ago. Now, how much we are willing to do and how quickly and how equitably is a very big question. I, I I come back to the G0 because it is the geopolitical reality that we live in today. In the United States, there is, I think, a significant consensus that we do need to reduce our carbon emissions and that net zero 2050 is a goal that is desirable. I think there's a lot of consensus towards that. But the idea that we should somehow be responsible and invest to help those countries that have per capita carbon emissions nowhere close to our own and historical carbon emissions nowhere close to our own. So they are not responsible for the fix that we are in today, but their participation and collaboration is critical 
to dealing with climate change. And here, of course, I'm, deal- I'm talking primarily about China and secondarily India, that no one's having that conversation. The Green New Deal that people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren talk about, that's not a Green Marshall Plan. That's not saying, here's what we need to do to make sure that the Indians and Chinese can participate equally, that they're human beings that have the same value and merit as American citizens. And yet, when you talk about climate change, you know, you're not just talking about fire, fires that are breaking out in one country or in one state. So I, I do think that even though the technology is improving and the money is moving, and I, I feel like we will be able to avoid the worst predations of changing climate, I don't think we're looking at five or six degrees of warming that many of the climate alarmists, even five, 10 years ago, were writing about in their books. Eurasia Group, we think baseline, we're looking at 3.5. And 3.5 is plenty worrisome in terms of hundreds of millions of people no longer able to live in the countries that they're presently living in, in terms of massive economic constraints and headwind against growth. This is a planet that, I mean, for many, for I think a majority of the planet, the quality of life will be less in 20 years than it is today if that, if that actually comes to bear. And that is, that's something that we haven't had to say for, for, I mean, the last 100 years, you know, the extraordinary improvement in productivity and efficiency rested by uh, technology has not had a counterweight of the sustainability of the world that we live on. But that's just a matter of timing. And now that's going to start to actually factor into that equation. Well, you mentioned earlier about BlackRock, and it is one of the biggest asset managers. It has decidedly drawn the line in the sand and is moving money out of industries that produce fossil fuels, right? It's very big in the ESG movement. A lot of the big money managers are. A lot of money is moving in that direction. Is that what it's going to take in addition to this broader change of public opinion to come to the realities of climate economics are going to be the reality of the next decade, and they will impact us in ways we haven't even foreseen? Does money need to keep moving out of those sectors? That will happen. Keep in mind that the reason why BlackRock is doing that, they want to be first in their field. First mover advantage matters. They don't want to be behind if they know that's where we're heading. And also because many of their investors, the the big pension funds, for example, they actually take a 10-year horizon on their money. And in 10 years' time, I mean, holding thermal coal in a portfolio was just an actively suicidal thing to do. So, I mean, these are irrespective of whether you think they're good or bad guys. They're smart guys. And they're smart guys that thankfully have a longer term perspective than a lot of the CEOs that have been in the industry. So I think that's that's a positive thing. Ian, amid all of this, all of these risks and everything that's happened in the past 16 months or so, we see capital markets exploding in size, record highs for the U.S. and European stock markets, wild speculation among day traders and stocks and cryptocurrencies. What are the risks of this dislocation of capital markets and the realities of most people who don't participate in them? I'm talking about income inequality, but I'm also talking about the privilege of those that have and have equity and have capital. Well, in the United States, the entrenchedness of special interests and the strength of political institutions is a break on the ability of anti-establishment forces to rest structural change on redistribution, 
on the way policy actually works. Now, look, $3.5 trillion in infrastructure investment, much of which is soft infrastructure and investing in human capital, education, and you know, sort of childcare and elderly care. This is a, a meaningful spend that will make a difference to reduce inequality in the United States, assuming it passes. And I think there's a better than even chance it will. I'm very pleased to see investment in rural broadband part of the country that has been truly underserved and hasn't been able to join the knowledge economy. That'll matter in 10 or 20 years. But also, I recognize the role of money in the political system in the US. I think it was in the late 19th century. I can't remember who said it It was a major political figure that said the two things that matter in politics. The first, number one is money. And I don't remember what number two is. And in the United States, the ability of special interests to capture the regulatory process is great. We as a country really lionize animal spirits, unfettered entrepreneurship and capitalism. I personally am a massive beneficiary of that reality. I was able to start a company with nothing, no network, no money, and I've built it up to 200 people and hundreds of millions of dollars. That's astonishing. That could not have happened in Canada or the European countries or in Japan. Uh, There's no way. But we need to understand that the same thing that privileges entrepreneurship and privileges special interests in the private sector. And yes, even privileges nascent monopolies over their spaces and has historically is also something that, especially as labor matters less to capital, is is meaning that the average American no longer believes in the American dream. The average American no longer has the ability to raise themselves and their children up that equality of opportunity does not describe the American experience today. Given all of these and all of these risks, what are you optimistic about from where you sit in terms of the rest of the year going forward for the next couple of years? What do you think may surprise us on the upside? Well, I mean, a couple of things. One, Caleb, is that from where I sit and from where you sit, there's a lot to be optimistic about. The problem is that that optimism increasingly does not actually get experienced by most of the people that are living even in our own country, never mind on the planet. So that's a problem. And that's part of the reason why this persists is because from where we sit, that optimism is still so directly palpable. From a global perspective, I mean, I am optimistic that we are making the decisions that will avoid the worst in climate that matters. I also am optimistic that the technological gains that we are seeing that have only accelerated because of COVID, because we had to work remotely and because we had to lean into all of these digital networks, they matter. And whether you're talking about cryptocurrencies or distance education or distance healthcare, I mean, advances in artificial intelligence. I mean, there are dystopian potentials for all of those things, but there's also extraordinary ability to advance humanity and to alleviate poverty and to reach out to people that hadn't been connected to the rest of the world and the global economy and make a difference for them. I was recently talking to Jennifer Doudna, who um, just got the Nobel for CRISPR. And she almost single-handedly with one, with one contributing partner has unlocked how to edit genes 
and change the future of life on the planet. And I'm not just talking about human beings and you know, maybe solving things like sickle cell anemia or, or cancer, but I'm talking about things like genetic tweaking for agriculture. And as we have climate change, we're able to genetically manipulate crops that, can, that don't need as much water and that can feed people that otherwise wouldn't be fed. You remember in the 1970s, there was this incredible book, I think it was by Stanford economist called The Population Bomb, basically said that there's no way that we could ever have 5 billion people, 7 billion people sustainable on the planet, that we'd be eating each other and we'd end up with 1 billion. It's almost a, you know, sort of a Malthusian, Jonathan Swift kind of analysis. It turned out to be completely wrong and completely wrong because we got a hell of a lot better at learning how to respond to challenges. And I believe that, you know, as we are unlocking the human potential, not just of white men, but of women all over the planet and Chinese and Indians and Africans, and they're getting educated, that they're going to be developing their own Mozarts and their own Einsteins. And I don't see how you cannot be optimistic about a planet that has that much human potential and capacity that's suddenly being unlocked. So valuable and such valuable per- perspective. Folks, if you want to stay smart on these topics, follow Ian and the Erasure Group, check out their research reports and tune into G Zero World, Ian's terrific podcast. I learn so much every time I listen. Thank you so much, Ian, for joining us. It's really good to have you on the Express. My pleasure. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. This week's term comes to us from Mostafa in Monroe, North Carolina, and Mostafa suggests short interest this week. We like that suggestion given the rise in short interest we're seeing in some parts of the equity market. First of all, what is short interest? Well, according to my favorite website, short interest is the number of shares that have been sold short but have not yet been covered or closed out. It can be expressed as a number or a percentage, and it's an indicator of market sentiment. An increase in short interest often signals that investors have become more bearish, while a decrease in short interest signals they become more bullish. We learned a lot about short interest earlier in the year when heavily shorted meme stocks became the rallying cry for day traders on Reddit's Wall Street bets. They would circle the stocks that hedge funds had shorted, like AMC and GameStop, and bid them higher, forcing those hedge funds to close out their positions at a massive loss. Cut to mid-August, and short interest has quieted down quite a bit, not just for meme stocks, but for the overall market. Short interest as a percentage of market capitalization of the S&P 500 stands at only 1.5%, down from about 1.8% in February. But you know where short sellers are circling right now? China. According to S3 Partners, which track short interest across global markets, some of the most heavily shorted stocks are Chinese ADRs, including Alibaba, Ping On Insurance, and NIO, the electric vehicle maker. The Hang Seng Index is in a bear market right now as Chinese regulators continue to target those industries with tighter rules. It's been a profitable place for short sellers lately. We'll see if that continues. Smart suggestion, Mustafa. You'll be getting a pair of our finest Investopedia socks in the mail for those late summer strolls around the Cane Creek Park in the beautiful hills of North Carolina. We're going to let Elon Musk take us out this week. Musk introduced a prototype for a Tesla robot, or bot, the company intends to build and distribute just like its car. In fact, Musk said that the Tesla electric vehicle is essentially a robot today and is already capable of autonomous driving. He left out the recent accidents the U.S. Highway and Transportation Department is looking into right now, but the bot, according to Musk, will replace many of the menial and physical tasks that human beings have been doing for centuries. And that, according to Musk, 
will fundamentally change the economy. Essentially, in the future, uh, physical work will be a choice. If you, if you want to do it, you can, but you won't need to do it. And um, yeah, I think it obviously has profound implications for the economy because uh, given that the economy at, at its foundational level uh, is labor, I mean, capital is uh, capital equipment is just distilled labor, uh, then um, is there any actual limit to the economy? Uh, maybe not. What could go wrong, Elon? Well, no matter what, let's all try to keep it real this week, especially in a world full of wrongs. Hang on in there, and we'll talk again a little further on down the line.